Let's pray. Father, we do pray that our time together would be profitable tonight. As we look at uh, the important uh, teaching regarding the way uh, you save us, uh, the doctrine of soteriology, and uh, a way that is, uh, we trust, biblical and sound in its approach. So we pray we would have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. And we pray this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. So, tonight, we're going to be looking at the doctrines of grace. And I prefer the term doctrines of grace to either Calvinism or Augustinianism, though you will see it on some of the papers. Uh, because once I get through with the historical context of where these five uh, particular doctrines came from, uh, John Calvin did not write the five points of Calvinism. You know, uh, I think he would be loath uh, to even have that assigned to his name, not because he didn't agree with it, but he did not write the five points of Calvinism. And so it's very interesting to hear where that came from, and that's what we're going to do first as we proceed, is to do a little bit of history uh, on and, and I actually believe when I look at this, uh, you're going to know right away that this is the minority report in the church. Most people do not believe what I'm going to teach you tonight. Um, they might believe portions of it or uh, parts of it, but yet not fully accept other parts of it. But it is so logically consistent and tight, it's really hard to do that and be consistent. Uh, and I think the most critical point in all of these five doctrines of grace, we usually call them TULIP, okay? Total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. Uh, those are the five petals on your TULIP. And uh, I think that the most critical one is the first one. Because if you concede the first one is true, you got nowhere else to go. You really don't. And this is what bothers me about it when I get to thinking deeply about it. If you're not consistent about it, like, for example, you believe a person can lose their salvation, then you have misunderstood the gospel uh, because um, the gospel is not works righteousness. And if it ends up you having to be the one responsible for saving yourself, that's works righteousness. I would question a person uh, if they tell me you could lose your, uh, your salvation. I will tell you this, if you work for your own salvation, you will certainly lose it. <laughs> but if you depend upon the works of Christ for your salvation, you certainly can never lose that. So with that said, let's jump right in. And um, we live in a time in which it's almost, uh, it's, it's ironic, because when you study history, all of these other views regarding the doctrine of salvation are generally regarded uh, today, all of what I'm sharing with you tonight is regarded as heresy by most churches. Um, and that just shows you what time does. Um, and, and that, uh, oh, I can remember when I dated my wife, Pam. And her pastor was a, he was a big man, and I, I think he wanted Pam to marry his son, who was a football player at Oklahoma. He was a tight end. 
But regardless of that, he told her, once he, once Pam told him that I was Calvinistic, and he was a Southern Baptist pastor, and he said, break up with him right away. <laughs> this is over. He said, you cannot marry that guy. He said, that is false teaching. And he just went off on it. And I remember laughing to myself and thinking, uh, you may not agree with it, but to call it heretical is a, is a pretty giant step. Uh, maybe you've never really searched the scriptures and thought about it. And it seemed to be when the circles I grew up in the church, especially in the Baptist church, were if you believe the doctrines of grace, you will no longer evangelize anybody. You'll lose any sense of urgency to share the gospel. That is exactly the opposite effect of what the doctrines of grace give you. They give you more incentive to evangelize than any other system. And so it's just a misunderstanding, I think. And I remember that when I first embraced these doctrines, it was in the midst of people who thought I was stark raving mad and who were worried about me and praying for me and confronting me about my error. I remember my pastor calling me into his office and I loved that guy, and he loved me, there was no doubt. But he told me if I went down this road, he said, there's no going back. And, you know, he was right. So anyway, I've had some experience with it. And what I've found is this can be a very emotional issue. Presbyterians are usually not emotional about it because we're not fighting it. Because we subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith, and it's all in there. It's all over the place in the Westminster Confession of Faith. By the way, on your watching of John Gerstner, I understand there are more than 24 episodes. Watch the rest of them, too. Just watch them whenever you want to. Watch four or five at a time if you want to. Just try to get through all of them, okay, that, that I've assigned to you. All right, let's jump right in then. Um, how lost are we? When Adam fell, how far did he fall? And those are important questions to think about. So we will begin our study of God's sovereign uh, grace and salvation with the biblical teaching regarding the effects of the fall upon man and the doctrine of original sin. Now this teaching is crucial for understanding the doctrine of salvation because one's understanding of the effects of the fall upon mankind will largely determine one's view of salvation. And that's why it's important to say, all right, what happened with Adam and what effect does that have upon his seed or those uh, who are represented by him, which is all mankind. Um, Adam's sin is foundational to the concept or a man's state resulting from Adam's sin is, is foundational to uh, the concept of how men appropriate salvation, men and women. Obviously, a person who views man as spiritual dead and unable to do anything that meets with God's approval will view salvation differently than a person who believes that man is sick and weakened but is still able to cooperate with God in the salvation process. So first, I'm just going to do a quick run-through about what happened when Adam sinned. The Bible teaches that Adam, of course, was created in the image of God with true knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Adam's nature was intrinsically good, 
And he had the spiritual and ethical ability to perfectly obey anything that God required of him in his unfallen state. After God created Adam, he made a covenant, a verbal agreement, a covenant of works with him where God promised Adam that if he rendered perfect, personal, perpetual obedience to God, he would never die. The reward would be to eat from the tree of life, which would be eternal life. If at any time Adam violated God's law by eating the fruit from the forbidden tree, he would most certainly die. Of course, we all know what happens. Genesis 3 records Adam's failure to obey God, and uh, Adam sinned in eating the forbidden fruit, fell from his original righteousness, lost his communion of God, was eventually uh, ex expulsed or expelled from Eden, cast out of paradise, became dead in sin, wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of the soul and body. And so the Bible teaches that Adam's sin not only had a negative spiritual consequence for himself, but also for the whole human race. That is, everyone, every single person who draws breath, uh, everyone descending from Adam by ordinary generation, uh, the teaching that mankind is guilty of the sin of Adam and corrupted in nature because of Adam's sin is commonly referred to as original sin. This teaching is part of the faith of every branch of Christendom. The disagreements on this teaching are over the nature and extent of man's corruption, and we're going to consider that in just a moment. But God's word says the guilt of Adam's sin was imputed to all men, and we know that to impute means to reckon it or to lay it to one's account. The teaching that in Adam's fall we sinned all is from the book of Romans chapter 5. And when we get there, we'll take a closer look of that uh, as we go through the series in Romans. But what I would say at this point is through one man, Adam, sin entered the world. Um, and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned in Adam's transgression. By the one man's offense, many died. Judgment which came from the one offense resulted in condemnation. And so uh, there was a kind of solidarity between Adam and the human race because God determined that Adam, the first created man, was the federal head of the human race uh, and of all mankind. It is no less a doctrine of scripture than a fact of experience that mankind are a fallen race. Um, and so that's pretty much a presupposition that you have to have going in to even look at the doctrine of salvation. So as a result of Adam's sin, all men also inherited Adam's moral corruption. The pollution or inner corruption of sin passes from Adam to his posterity by ordinary generation. All you have to do to become a sinner and be one is be born. That's it. You don't become a sinner because you sin. You sin because you're already what? A sinner. That's as simple as I could put it. And that's true. Therefore, our first parents are now not only guilty before God, but also morally corrupt throughout their entire being is also immediately evident in the fact that their first transgression is immediately followed by a series of transgressions as God confronts them in the garden and they pass the buck and blame 
in the context. So, we see Adam and Eve refusing to acknowledge openly their willful act of disobedience and take the blame for it. Adam blames his wife indirectly, God himself for the situation. Eve then blames the serpent. Now, with that said, the consequences of Adam's sin are still comprehended under the term death in the widest sense. Because of Adam's sin, spiritual and physical death pass to all men. All men naturally born of Adam's seed come into this world spiritually dead, with an innate hatred and hostility toward God, with a depraved soul that loves sin and cannot cease from it, with ethical pollution that extends to every aspect of his nature. The imagination of man's heart is only evil from his youth, Genesis 8.21. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me, Psalm 51.5. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies, Psalm 58.3. For there is not a just man on the earth who does good and does not sin, Ecclesiastes 7.20. That which is born of flesh is flesh, John chapter 3, verse 6. We were by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2. Um, according to Scripture, Adam's sin and its consequences, which are real guilt, liability of punishment, spiritual death, and man's inherited moral corruption have rendered man unable to respond to the gospel and even unable to cooperate by his own self-determining power or free will with the first motions of grace. Our state after the fall is spiritual death, not mere sickness. Therefore, we must acknowledge the greatness of our sin, slavery, and misery, and earnestly acknowledge that salvation is absolutely and solely a work of God's grace. And so we're going to get to total depravity in a moment, but what I'd like to do is first, uh, we'll look at the scriptural proofs and talk about the extent of it. But the first great controversy over the doctrine of original sin and its relationship to how God's grace operates was the Pelagian controversy. And so I have written up here Pelagius, and then he got uh, something called Pelagian ism as a result of his view. Now, who is this guy Pelagius, and why does he matter? Well, the first great controversy over the doctrine of original sin and its relationship to how God's grace operates is the Pelagian controversy. The Pelagian movement was named after Pelagius, who lived A.D. 360 to 420. He was a British layman. He was a monk who advocated asceticism. You know what asceticism is? Ultra self-denial. Crawling across broken glass, wearing hair shirts, being out in the cold, starving yourself, trying to, through the body, suppress your sin nature. But he didn't believe you had one. The Pelagian movement was named after Pelagius. Pelagians Pelagius had become a teacher of asceticism in Rome, circa 400, and believed that the church's view of original sin, which at that time was dominated by Augustinianism, which is very close to how we see it, 
denied human responsibility and discouraged holiness. So Pelagius thought that Augustinianism denied human responsibility, and Catholics were always worried about that, and uh, discouraged holiness. So Pelagius was the first theologian to set forth the principle that man must uh, have plenary ability to do and to be whatever he can be righteously required of him. God can't hold us responsible if we don't have ability. That's his argument. The intimate conviction that man can be responsible for nothing which is not in their power led, in the first place, to the Pelagian doctrine of the freedom of the will. The philosophical presupposition set forth by Pelagius regarding freedom of the will and human responsibility completely and consistently dominated his whole system. In an attempt to preserve his concept of human responsibility, Pelagius and his followers taught the following, and listen carefully. Adam's sin only brought injury to himself and no one else. That's what Pelagius taught. Number two, there's no such thing as original sin or inherent hereditary moral corruption. Number three, everyone born after Adam is the same as Adam was before the fall. Adam's sin was only a bad example to his posterity and nothing more. Since all men are born without contamination of original sin and moral depravity, everyone has the full ability to do everything that God requires. And many men have lived without sin, so Pelagius said. His followers taught that men could be saved without the gospel by keeping God's law. Okay. Um, uh, let me see where I dropped off there. Yeah. The only difference is that under the light of the gospel, the perfect obedience is rendered more easy. Adam, in a state of innocence, was mortal and would have died whether he sinned or not. Therefore, the fact that all men grow old and die has nothing to do with the fall. The grace of God refers not to unmerited favor, to undeserving sinners, but simply to the natural endowments of men which are gifts from God. Grace uh, merely enables us to do more easily what we could do still without it, albeit with greater difficulty. That's what Pelagius taught in his controversy course, with St. Augustine. Now, the teachings of Pelagius and his followers were condemned at the Council of Carth Carthage, A.D. 418, and again at the Council of Ephesus, A.D. 431. While Pelagianism was a dangerous heresy because it denied the grace of God and the gospel, it nevertheless was used by God to greatly sharpen the early church's understanding of original sin and the nature of saving grace. So one blessing that comes out of heresy is what? Yes, it forces the church to go back and look at the issue uh, at these councils and render a decision. Now, as a result of all of that, uh, the controversy raised the question that is still with us today. And that is, are sinners saved because of their own will, strength, or exertion? Or are they saved solely by God's grace, solely by what God does? And although modern, uh, uh, most modern evangelicals will recognize the obvious gross deficiencies of the Pelagian system, nevertheless, the central presupposition of underlying Pelagianism lives on. That is, 
the philosophical, philosophical idea that responsibility presupposes human ability. How can God hold me responsible for something I cannot do? Makes sense, doesn't it, when you think about it apart from what Scripture says. But then, of course, as is always, we get a new and improved Pelagianism. We get semi-Pelagianism. And uh, semi-Pelagianism will ultimately issue in what we call Arminianism. I remember Susan Donovan, who is an Armenian, came to the church, and Carl was here, and he started talking about Arminianism and the Arminians. And he was saying negative stuff about it. And Susan said, what has he got with the Arminians? What is his deal? So she went and asked him, and Carl said, no, 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 no. We're not talking about Armenians. We're talking about a guy named Jacob, Arminius, and his brother James. It's really interesting when you study these guys. I, I have to say I love church history more than you probably, I don't know more than you, but. Uh, some just say, get to the point. He gave us a handout. Get to the handout. Move on. I understand that kind of. <laughs> Semi-Pelagianism. After Pelagianism was de uh, defeated with the help of great theologians such as Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, it went underground and reemerged in a milder, more palata uh, palatable form. Although the original Semi-Pelagian Differed in many areas, the general teachings of semi-Pelagian are as follows. Contrary to Pelagius, the sin of corruption and corruption of Adam did pass on to his posterity, causing disease, suffering, mortality, and a pro propensity toward evil. Therefore, man needs divine assistance if he is to do anything spiritually good. But contrary to the pure grace system of Augustine, they held that the beginning of salvation is with man. Man begins to seek God, and then God aids him. So the initial step is taken by man. That this incipient turning of the soul toward God is something good, and in one sense meritorious. That the soul, in virtue of its liberty of will or ability for good, cooperates with the grace of God in regeneration. Although there are differences between semi-Pelagianism and classical Arminianism, the similarities between them and what is, is what is taught in many modern evangelical churches. You will hear this. Most modern evangelicals do not believe that man is really spiritually dead, totally depraved as a result of the fall, but that merely or merely that man is spiritually sick. In other words, man still has the spiritual ability and thus can make a move toward Jesus and even choose him if the right techniques are employed. Further, the common doctrine among evangelicals and fundamentalists called decisional regeneration is very similar to semi-Pelagianism. In many evangelical churches, people are told to come to the front of the church, it's called an altar call, choose Christ or pray a prayer, and the result will be that God will respond to man's act of choice, and then the man, after he makes the choice and exercises faith, will be regenerated uh, as a result of his coming. Uh, and in other words, man cooperates with God and allows God to save him. 
This teaching is very different from the biblical view that men are dead in trespasses and sins, and the Holy Spirit raises the dead heart to life, regenerates it, and causes it to savingly embrace Christ. Although semi-Pelagianism was condemned by the church at the Second Council of Orange, or Orange, if you're where I'm from, in uh, A.D. 529, the church accepted a modified version of semi-Pelagianism, sort of a semi-semi-Pelagianism, and thus eliminated the contradiction between Augustine's doctrine of salvation and doctrine of the church. The Roman Catholic Church accepted a synergistic doctrine of salvation which better suited their man-controlled channels of grace concept of the sacrament. The tragedy, thus tragically, in the sphere of salvation, most modern evangelicalism has unknowingly sided itself with Romanism and not Protestant uh, Reformation. Now we're to Arminianism, the first page of your notes, but it's not going to follow that exactly. Arminianism is named after the Dutch theologian Jacobus Arminius. He lived from 1560 to 1609. 49 years. He was a professor in Leiden, and he began to challenge the doctrines of grace as then taught in the Dutch Reformed churches. His views were developed and systematized by followers to the five theses of the Remonstrant Articles in 1610, now commonly known as the Five Points of Arminianism. And so long before, there were the five points of Calvinism. There were the five points of Arminianism. So it's neat to see and important to see the context in which these emerged. And here are uh, their points. Uh, free will or human ability. Although human nature was seriously affected by the fall, man has not been left in a state of total spiritual helplessness. God graciously enables every sinner to repent and believe, but he does so in such a manner as not to interfere with man's freedom. Each sinner possesses a free will, and his eternal destiny depends on how he uses it. Man's freedom consists of his ability to choose good over evil in spiritual matters. His will is not enslaved to his sinful nature. The sinner has the power either to cooperate with God's spirit and be regenerated or to resist God's grace and perish. The lost sinner needs the spirit's assistance, but he does not have to be regenerated by the spirit before he can believe. For faith is man's act and precedes a new birth. Faith is the sinner's gift to God. It is man's contribution to salvation. Now, you may be listening to some of this and going, well, well, well. Hold on. <laughs> like semi-Pelagianism, Arminianism teaches that human nature is injured by the fall, but man still has the ability to do that, which is spiritually good, and turn to God. So they don't believe that man was rendered impotent and had total inability as a result of the fall, but rather that maybe he was wounded, maybe he was sick, he has a disease, but he has the power in himself to overcome that. And although Arminianism is a system more developed and sophisticated than semi-Pelagianism, it still adheres to the central core 
of semi-Pelagian teaching. That is, man is only partially depraved, and thus his will, though damaged, still has the ability to see spiritual good and generate faith toward Christ. Sinners just need a little bit of help. Man needs the preventing, exciting, and assisting grace of God in order to their conversion. Further, the divine grace is afforded to all men in sufficient measure to enable them to repent, believe, and keep all the commandments of God. Thus man, and not God, is sovereign over his own salvation. Man, according to Arminian doctrine, does not need a spiritual resurrection from the dead in order to believe, but merely some first aid. According to Arminianism, salvation is a cooperative effort between God and man in which man plays the most important role. The teaching is synergistic in that man contributes something to his own salvation. What does synergistic mean? Sin, ergo, uh, so it's working together with. Uh, we believe, on the other hand, that uh, regeneration or being born again is a minor ergistic work. And so that's a huge difference in terms of that. Uh, John Wesley and the Methodists pretty much followed... Arminianism, though they corrected it along the way, uh, Wesley was a great man. He was even a better man once he got saved. Because <laughs> you remember that Wesley came to America as a missionary, right? And just had a devastating experience. And apparently he and Charles went to a meeting in London after their fiasco, and somebody was reading... Luther's preface to the book of Galatians, and Charles was saved. And then I guess Charles talked enough to John to where he became saved, and they altered their views but never came to the point of election and, of course, the uh, definite atonement or whatever you want to call it. So, although Arminianism was condemned by the Synod of Dort, in 1618 through 1619, that was a big deal. The Synod of Dort. It met in Dordrecht, Holland. And uh, that's why it's called Dort. And it was soundly and thoroughly refuted by Scripture, spread through the whole world, permeated every branch, branch of Protestantism, Protestantism, and came to be seen thoroughly as the dominant uh, viewpoint. Because of Arminians' affinity with semi-Pelagianism, Romanism, and humanism, the sharp antithesis that once existed between Rome, Protestantism and Roman Catholic has in recent years been greatly obscured uh, because of the influence of these doctrines. So that's really what I wanted to say. Let me run again uh, over the points of Arminianism because they're going to be in our discussion. Here they are. By the way, uh, Jacob Arminius never wrote a thing. Now everybody, every theologian during his time published. You published or perished, I guess. But he had enough writings to fill three sizable volumes. But he never submitted them. Why do you think he didn't? Well, because he knew he would 
Yeah, he would be probably excommunicated. Yeah, yeah. But here's here's his view. Uh, they teach a limited effect of sin. The summary had five points. Here they are. Conditional election, universal atonement, complete depravity, resistible grace, and uncertainty about the perseverance of the saints. Now his brother, James, was the one that sort of took over and popularized that. So with that said, we are now ready to get into the doctrines of grace. Yeah. Yeah. They just not have enough like I mean I can I, I disagree with what they came up with, but I'm just curious, like my thought is like what they didn't use the Bible but what they didn't have it. They probably didn't have a copy of the Bible and they just used human reason. So yeah. Human reason would lead you to these positions, no doubt. The only thing that challenges that is uh the word of God. And that's kind of what we're going to do now is look and see, all right, uh, are uh, Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and Arminianism grounded in the word or are they not? Of course, you know where I stand on that before I say a word. But um, that was more started in Holland by the Arminiuses, and then they developed a following. And then uh, the Reformation happened. But even in the Reformation, there was uh, the radical reformers called the Anabaptists, and they promoted a great deal of this kind of teaching, thinking. And the Anabaptists were not so much sola scriptura as sola experience. And God speaking to them directly, not so much through Scripture. So, yeah. But um, there is a tension between the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man. But let's turn in your outline to not the historical background, but we're now ready for the condition of fallen man. And this is simple, straightforward. Uh, Arminianism, man is spiritually sick. Fallen man was seriously affected by the fall, but he still has the ability, underline that word ability, to choose spiritual good and thereby determine his eternal destiny. And so that's a very man-centered approach to salvation on the top of it. Uh, the doctrines of grace, known as total depravity, man is spiritually dead. Because of the fall, man has become spiritually dead, blind and deaf to the things of God and is therefore unable of himself to choose spiritual good and determine his eternal destiny. Uh, total depravity does not mean that man is as bad as he can be, but that man is as bad off as he can be. He's helpless. He's dead. Uh, he's not going down for the count. You know, you used to see those cartoons where they'd count one and go under the water, count two, go under the water, count three, and finally go under the water and somebody would go get them and bring them out. 
Well, that analogy for Calvinism is you're already on the bottom, dead, with a toe tag. And they're hauling you to the morgue spiritually. You're just dead. There's no life there. Um, I think at my conversion, what I realized, what, what I remember existentially grasping the day I was converted, which I thought I was just repenting of not living like a Christian that I should have been. But that's when God regenerated me, I believe. And all of a sudden I was aware that I had life and it was different than any life I had ever had before. And that it was like my eyes had been totally blind to reality. And I was 19 years old when I was converted, running from Jesus as fast as I could. But I just remember like, oh, I've been, I didn't even know this, this spiritual reality existed. And it was profound. Now, let's look at some key scriptures. Again, because of the fall, man has become spiritually dead, blind, deaf to the things of God. Once you study these, you're going to find out how much a miracle your salvation is. Uh, I remember a preacher once preaching. He said, you know, if you went to a service and there was a big healing service, and somebody's leg got healed or somebody's arm went back into socket or uh, were healed of deafness or blindness. And then at the same service, you had a nine-year-old girl come forward and pres- uh, make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. What would everybody go home talking about? Yeah, the miracles. The biggest miracle in the universe is when anybody is saved. It's a spiritual resurrection from the dead. Now, what are key scriptures? The fall has resulted in spiritual death to all men. Genesis 2, 16 and 17, And the Lord commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely what? And he did. Not physically, did he? Not right away. But he died. Spiritual death is separation from God. Therefore, Romans 5.12, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and this way death came to all men because all sin. Ephesians uh, chapter 2, 1 through 3, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. What's a transgression? Trans means a what? And aggression means what? It's stepping across the boundary. The boundary of what? God's law. So transgression is a violation of the boundaries God has established uh, by his word and will. So we were dead, living in transgression and sins, which is generally missing the mark, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Who's that? Devil. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. It isn't the Holy Spirit at work in unbelievers. It is who? The powers of darkness. Yes. Animate unbelievers. Uh, All of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings, that is the epithumia, of our sinful nature, Following its desires and thoughts like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Colossians 2.13. 
When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He uh, forgave us all our sins. So scripture seems to say that man is not sick, but what? Yeah. Fallen man is now blind and deaf to the spiritual truth. Genesis 6.5. I'll just read these verses for support. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 8.21. The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma and said in his heart, Never again will I curse the ground because of man, even though every inclination of his heart is evil from where? Childhood. And never again will I destroy all living creatures as I have done. Ecclesiastes 9.3 This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of men, moreover, are full of evil. And there is madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. And then Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. I wonder if Pelagius ever heard that verse. Probably not. Who can understand it? The heart is deceitful. What does deceitful mean? Yeah, it's a big lie. And uh, we don't even, you know, when we're lost, we have no clue that we're as lost as we are. And then Jesus in Mark chapter 7, in case you say, well, Jesus didn't say, yes, he did. He said this, for, or Mark 7, 21 23, for from within, out of men's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. I once had somebody confront me and say, how can you raise, rear your family in a city like Las Vegas? With all those disgusting, you know, okay, there's disgusting stuff. There are billboards and, and taxi cabs and stuff. But I told that person, because I'd had enough, there ain't nothing on a billboard that ain't already in your heart. It's already there. You see, you want me to get them out of here to save them from Vegas. Somebody's going to need to save them from you and me, because we're sinful too. But that's what Jesus says. That's the condition with of people were full of greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. All right. Fallen man is now under the control of Satan and in bondage to sin. Now, how can you be free if you're in bondage? You can't, right? Um, what are the verses that say so? You belong to your father, the devil. You want to carry out your father's design. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Ephesians 2, we've already looked at. 2 Timothy 2, 25-26, Those who oppose him must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, that they will come to their senses and escape from the bondage of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. How free are you if you're captive to the devil? Uh, 
We know that we are the children of God and that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. That's from Romans. Now, so, so the Bible describes our condition as following. It's not one of freedom. Now, do I believe that man has a will? I may be jumping ahead here. Yeah, he does. But I take the Jonathan Edwards view of the bondage of the will, and also Martin Luther, I agree with him as well, and R.C. Sproul primarily is who I got it from. You're free to choose anything you want. The trouble is, as an unbeliever, you don't want who? You don't want God. No, you don't. And so, there you have it. Fallen man left in his dead state is totally unable to repent, to believe the gospel, or come to Christ. Um, John 6.44 No one, it's an absolute negative, can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Can you come? Can you decide to come anytime you want to? No. What has to happen? You have to be drawn. He went on to say, that is why I told you no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. The man without the Spirit, 1 Corinthians 2.14, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to them. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. It's bad, is it not? It, it almost seems like something's going to have to come from outside of us and rescue us, right? That we are in dire need of rescue. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that the Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it is, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. No one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. No, not even one. So that is the... Pardon? <laughs> yeah, it is. No doubt. Now, part two, you talk about the nature of God's Election, the doctrine of unconditional election. Let me erase all this heresy up there. It's getting on my nerves. But I have to tell you, everything I'm writing up here, I have been before. Uh, now, people who absolutize the doctrines of grace say we're all born Pelagian when we when we first become a Christian, we're semi-Pelagian, then Arminian, and sanctification is changing from an Arminian to a Calvinist. <laughs> well, it's not true. Not at all. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, that's true. Before uh, Arminianism, God, what does election mean? You know what D.L. Moody said election was? God votes for you, the devil votes against you, and you cast the deciding vote. 
That's what he said. Now, I like D.L. Moody. He's a great evangelist. He's just wrong about that. But uh, I've been, I was wrong about this for a long time, too. Uh, don't want to be arrogant about this stuff because the only reason you'll ever understand this and make it your own is the grace of God. I mean, we have no reason to boast. Though I have. Um, God's election is unconditional. God's, uh, before the foundation of the world, this is the Arminian view, God chose certain individuals for salvation based on his foreseeing that they would of their own free will choose Christ. And so it's like God in the beginning, before the world was, looked down the time tunnel, or he's eternal. There are no succession of moments with God. He's not subject to time and space, except he did so when he united with the human nature of Christ. But he looks down the time tunnel, he sees that Shemaine Shad is going to receive Christ on this date. She'll hear the gospel, she'll believe it, she'll become a new creature in Christ, therefore I'm going to pick her. Now who's doing the picking there? Her or God? Yeah. See the man-centered nature of Arminianism. It's all about us, not about God. Calvinism is God's choice of certain individuals for salvation before the foundation of the world was not based on any foreseen response of obedience on their part, such as even repentance or faith, was based solely on his good and sovereign will. Now, um, the different words for election, I have another study that I did on that, it's like a hundred and seven times the word elect or election or elected are used in the Bible. So we're not talking about one verse, okay? We're not talking about like two verses and we build a whole superstructure on two verses. Why did God choose the Jews? Why? Yeah. Yeah. He said not that they were more than anybody, not that they were better than anybody. I chose them because I chose them because I loved them. I set my love on them. Now, uh, predestination is related to election. The key scriptures are God has an elect people who he, whom he has chosen to grant salvation. God's choice was not based upon any foreseen faith or good works. Faith and good works are the result, not the ground of predestination. The biblical term foreknew in Romans 8 means to forelove, to set regard upon, to know with particular interest, delight, affection, or action, to foreordain. We read the Bible foreknow, then we think what? Well, God knew beforehand that they were going to choose him, therefore he chose them. That's where that comes from. But when uh, the Bible says Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore a son, that's more than a handshake, isn't it? That's involved. And when the Bible says God foreknew us, yeah, it's, it just means he loves us. He's, he's insanely crazy about us. I, I don't mean to be irreverent when I say that, but he is. I'm just so excited about that. I love that every day. I love to be loved. Let's talk about predestination for just a quick minute. I mean, I have a whole study here on it. And it's already almost 8 o'clock, and I'll have you out of here by 8.15. Yeah. Uh, so, I call it the P word. 
And it is a word that upsets people. Uh, I, I remember I had a friend in high school. There were three Christians in my high school. One's name was Jimmy. One's name was Chuck. And me, I thought I was, but I probably wasn't. But I, we all went to church. Uh, Jimmy was a Presbyterian. Chuck was a Baptist. I was a Baptist. Chuck ended up being my roommate in college. Jimmy ended up being a church history professor in England. And I remember talking to Jimmy, and I said, well, what is it about Presbyterianism that you're so crazy about? Is that just where your family grew up or what? And he said, no, I, I think predestination says it all. You know, and I'm a senior in high school, and I just say, I ought to punch you in the nose. What is that? Predestination. You better than me? I guess that's what I thought. You're not better than me. But anyway, controversy usually is focused upon the basis of predestination. That is to say, why or on what grounds are some people chosen and others are not? And there are only three options. One is pagan, two are Christian. God elects those who are good. They put God in debt by their goodness, and he's obligated to pay. And through self-generated righteousness, Pelagianism at its finest, they are selected because they're good. That's pagan, by the way. The second one, God elects some who are bad, who, though bad, are good enough to exercise faith in Christ. On the basis of this foreseen faith, God elects them. That's Arminianism. Number three, God elects the bad, who because of their being bad, are not able to exercise faith in Christ. On the basis of his sovereign good pleasure, God elects them, and thus... Does God choose people because they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or does God choose people in order that they shall believe in Jesus Christ? The second one is correct. God elects unbelievers and predestines them to become believers, or God elects believers and predestines them to be his children. The first one is does God elect a man because that man wants God? Or does God elect a man because God wants that man in spite of the fact that that man does not want God? That's the correct one. You see, it's grace. It's grace. I would love to read all the scriptures here, but we have a few more points to do. We've only done two. I can maybe publish these for you. The design of the atonement. Now, this is one that I think bothers people because what have we heard our whole life? Christ died for the world. God so loved the world that whosoever shall believe in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And so what we're talking about here is what I like to call the intent of the atonement or the design of the atonement. And so the question then becomes, for whom did Christ die? And the Armenians say Christ's death was designed to make salvation possible. Underline that word, possible. What is the contingency there? Right. That is ex absolutely right, Carl. You're listening. There we go. <laughs> Calvinism. Christ's death was designed to actually what? 
secure. Salvation. For whom? All the chosen people. Uh, I gave you a handout there called 10 Arguments Regarding the Design of the Atonement by Robert Raymond, who taught at Covenant Seminary for years. I have his systematic theology in my library. There is a copy of his systematic theology in the giveaway books, by the way, uh, which I would think is worthwhile. It's just based on the Westminster Confession. If I didn't already have it, it would not be on that shelf. I'll tell you that. So don't run after this is over and get it. Christ's death secured and actually accomplished the salvation of all of God's chosen people. God has determined that all for whom Christ sacrificed himself will be saved. Now, anybody know? Anybody ever read the death of uh, J.I. Packer's, John Owen's, what is it called? The death of... Yeah. He talks about something called double jeopardy. No, this is not the game. And I still miss Alex Trebek, no matter who does it. I think there's some decent ones on there. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what's the double jeopardy argument? If Christ went to the cross and died for the sin of every single person, that is, he absorbed in, in himself the punishment, he paid the price of it, he sacrificed it, then why would God punish sin in people who reject Jesus? He's already punished them. So it would be double jeopardy. That is, I hope I'm doing this right. Yeah, because <laughs> he hates. Yeah. Uh, it's basically the idea that it would not be just of God and by the way, the argument that things aren't fair with election and predestination, even the atonement, what is fair? Yeah, that's a shortcut. What is fair is justice. For example, when I had a test in seminary, my first test from Marcy Sproul on the doctrine of God, and we went through like Mark, but it was even more intense than Mark was teaching on the attributes of God. And... Uh, First testing, we all study for hours. We come in and take the test. It has 88 matching questions on every Latin phrase he used in the lecture. Now, for me, that was wonderful because I had two years of Latin in high school. And I could figure it out. But for other people, they went insane. And you can't believe how competitive students are at seminary. Everybody wants to come out on top including me. But, <laughs> yeah, all for Jesus, mostly me. But, yeah, so anyway, at the end of that, all the students were complaining what is not fair. This is not fair. This is not fair. You shouldn't have done this. He said, you want fair? He said, do you really, really want me to be fair? Because he gave everybody a passing grade in the end. Gave them a C. Of course, me, I think I made an 88 out of 100 on the test. But he gave him a C. But that was not fair. What is fair is for us to ever be banished from the face of God and suffer eternal torment forever in hell, in darkness. That's what's fair. 
And so Jesus did not pay the price of somebody's sin on the cross, and then they have to pay the price for their sin in hell forever. And so the logic there is there's only one payment. Uh, or if a person does not receive Christ, Christ doesn't become their savior, he becomes their judge. Christ's death is set forth in scripture as that which actually accomplishes salvation and does not merely make it possible. His death actually reconciled us to God. It actually redeemed us, actually saved us. Jesus was sent into the world to save the people whom the Father had given him. Just read the Gospel of John. Let me encourage you to do that, and you will see this everywhere. Once you learn this stuff, then you start. Uh, we went home one Christmas and uh, to Pam's family, and uh, they didn't believe this stuff. And so <laughs> I didn't talk about it. You know, I was Christmas time. I don't want to get into a big fight. So we're sitting down, and my brother-in-law, who was married to my wife's sister, is a big instigator. He loves so he sat down, and we were all gathered in the room waiting on a Christmas meal. And his name was Hugh, and Hugh looks at me and says, Well, what does a Presbyterian believe about predestination? And so I start telling him, this is what Presbyterians believe. And I give him a similar explanation of what we're talking about tonight. And you would have thought I was pillaging and raping and the village. I mean, and Pam's father, who was the most laid-back human being I've ever been around in my life, nothing seemed to rattle, he popped up out of his recliner and said, you can't possibly believe that. And then my two, my daughters came in the room, and they started supporting it, and Pam's sister started crying and said, oh my gosh, they've taught their children this stuff. <laughs> so I have paid the price. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, he knew what he was doing. He was grinning the whole time, like a Cheshire cat. Christ's sacrificial and intercessory work as high priest is for those the Father has given. Who are the people the Father gave him in John's Gospel? The elect. Now, what do we do with the word all or the word world as we read it in some of the passages? You tell me, what do we do? Yeah. All can mean what? All without exception? Or all types? All kinds? Uh, the word world is often used in the New Testament. The whole world heard this, but it was only the ancient Near East. Uh, Palestine? It wasn't everybody in the whole globe didn't know it. It, it clarifies it. It absolutely does. Context is everything, usually. The meaning of words in the Bible, there are lexical definitions, what a Greek word means uh, in all of its tenses and cases and what have you. But there's also context shapes the meaning of a word. And so often we run into those words. Now, could was Jesus' death of infinite value? Absolutely. I mean, is there enough grace there to save everyone who's ever lived? Yes. But what was the intent of the atonement? It's particular to save the ones he had given 
the Father had given him to save, which really refers to the pactum salutis or the um, yeah covenant of grace. Christ's saving work was intended to save a particular people, his people, his sheep, the church, God's elect, his friends, for many. And many does not mean all without exception. It means many, but not everybody. Those for whom Christ died are innumerable hosts from every tribe, tongue, people, tongue, people, and nation in the world. And so, those for whom Christ died are innumerable. I love that word innumerable. Now, does this kill evangelism? Oh, no. Why? I mean, there's no way for me to know who's elect and who's not. They don't have a stripe on their back. You don't pull up the shirt. No. No. I assume what when I'm talking to a person? That they might be elect. So what do I do? I share the gospel with boldness. Why? I don't know that God might not use that to bring that person to himself at that moment. But it also takes... Have you ever tried to share your faith with anybody and just totally blew it? You didn't say what you wanted to say. It didn't come out right. You go home, you're embarrassed. I'm never doing that again the rest of my life. I don't know. God may be mad at me and I'll lose a star in my crown but I'm never doing that again. And the thing is, <laughs> that's not a rationale to be sloppy, but it doesn't depend upon you. And the reason why I'm so excited about these doctrines is, I know when I stand up here and preach Sunday after Sunday, somebody's going to hear it. <laughs> somebody's going to believe it. Somebody's going to be saved. And that just excites me beyond excitement to know that I could be used in a way, and you can be used in a way like that. So, it does not kill evangelism. Alright, let's get into irresistible grace. Arminianism says the Holy Spirit cannot regenerate fallen man until he believes. If you want to find out, we were interviewing a person here one time for who kind of wanted to, they were a pastor, they'd been to seminary, uh, not a Reformed seminary, but they'd been to a pretty good seminary. It was Dallas Theological, uh, which is, you know, I mean, it's serious. It's an error in places, in my opinion. I almost went there, but by the grace of God, I didn't. <laughs> but what was I talking about? Yeah. Ask this question if you want to know if a person is a Calvinist. What comes first? Right. Faith or what? All right, what comes first? Yes. What is regeneration? Yeah. We do not have in and of ourselves the ability to exercise saving faith apart from regeneration. We are dead. That said, the Holy Spirit regenerates every one of God's chosen people enabling them to believe. The Holy Spirit graciously regenerates every one of God's chosen people creating within them the new covenant reality of a new heart enabling them to freely and willingly believe in Christ as Savior and Lord. The new birth proceeds and makes possible saving faith. Life gives faith. 
Read John chapter 1 if you don't believe that's true. It's stated that way clearly in John chapter 1. Don't have time to go there. But regeneration always comes first. Now the guy from Dallas, what did he say? He said faith. He didn't get hired. <laughs> so there you go. I don't think we would have hired him anyway. He was, I liked his wife a lot better than I did him. But, you know, what are you say? Everybody did. Uh, everyone whom the Father has chosen, election, and for whom Christ died, will certainly experience the application of that salvation by the Holy Spirit. Oh, here's that key quotation that I didn't read to you. You see this? For whom did Christ die? Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Westminster Confession, all good stuff. We're now ready for the final one because I told you you're going to be out of here by what? Spiritual regeneration is an inward change in man performed solely by the Holy Spirit, not dependent upon man's help or cooperation. It is a new birth, a new heart, a new creation, a resurrection, a gift. Repentance and faith are divine gifts which are the result, not the cause of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And yet, we are commanded to what? Repent and believe. So does God command us to do what we don't have within ourselves to do? And the answer is yes, he does. Why? Because of Adam's sin, which is ours. Arminianism. The last one is the nature of true faith or perseverance. All who believe and are truly saved can lose their salvation by failing to keep up their faith. If you save yourself, you will lose it. Antinomianism, which is often called easy believism. I run into these people all the time who tell me. I was watching Billy Graham on television in 1967. And he gave an altar call. And I went forward to the TV and prayed the prayer. And I was saved. And I hadn't been to church since. And nothing in my life has changed. Now, I don't, I'm not a Billy Graham hater. Not at all. I, I don't have enough time to hate. Uh, and it's not worth it. Don't be a hater. Except for heretics. And some, you know, Billy Graham started out as a Presbyterian. Did you know that? He did. He did. But, uh, I've ran into so many people who tell me that. Uh, and then they say, once saved, what? Always saved. And, the doctrines of grace, perseverance of the saints, all who are chosen by God, redeemed by Christ, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, are eternally saved. They are kept in the faith by the power of Almighty God and therefore continue to persevere in the faith. Do you have assurance if you're not persevering in the faith? No. No. That's a miserable place to be. I mean, you can't go around and say, I have assurance of my salvation if you're not persevering. Because he preserves us in our perseverance. The person who truly believes in Jesus Christ has new life, and that life is eternal. All those who come to genuine saving faith in Christ are kept secure in him for eternity by the power of God. True believers will persevere in the faith and obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit to the very end. But does that mean that a true believer can't lapse or backslide? What about all the warnings in Scripture in the book of Hebrews? 
This is for you. Tell me about that. I preached with the book of Hebrews. I don't know if any of you were here. You were. You were. Shemaine was. What are all those warning passages in Hebrews? Absolutely. You are right on it. Absolutely. Uh, uh, and I believe Hebrews 6 also has a message for covenant children who do not make a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. That that passage in Hebrews 6 is a warning to covenant children who are baptized as children or in infancy and never make a profession of faith. One of my daughters is that way, and I, I don't even like to read that passage because it bothers my youngest. All right, um, let me see if there's anything else I left out. Does anybody have any questions? Now, the uh, solas, I was going to do a whole thing on the solas, but I can't do it in 15 minutes. And I, I just printed for you in your packet that. That was what I was going to say anyway about the five solas of the Reformation. But essentially, to be an elder or deacon in this church, you need to affirm uh, these truths. Because we all subscribe to the Westminster Confession of Faith as containing the system of doctrine taught in Holy Scripture. And as you've noticed, the Westminster Confession is all throughout these notes. So any questions about this? Now, let's say you don't agree or believe it right now. I, that's fine. I mean, that's okay. But you think about it. You pray about it. You read your Bible. And when you see these verses, this is what I didn't tell you the last of the story about my in-laws. This is the closing. So we had that horrible Christmas and it about ruined it for everybody. And so we come back to the house for another event. And all of a sudden, Pam's mom comes up and looks at me and says, you know, Donald, that's Pam's dad, and I have been reading our Bibles, and they were serious about the Word of God, and we're starting to see all this stuff. And she said, and I think you might be right. <laughs> and I said, really? Because uh, I've always been the strange one in the family. Everybody else is Southern Baptist. Her brother will never be alone with me because he's afraid I'm going to convert him. He's so afraid that I'm going to convert because I'll start talking to him and it's like he doesn't want to say yeah. I can see him get nervous. I'm not saying yeah. But uh, that was a wonderful thing was I just told him at the end of it all, I said, well, just read your Bibles and if you find another way, let me know and I, I'll repent. Uh, but they came around, uh, which was a wonderful thing. All right. Everybody done? No questions? Yeah. This is this is what I'll tell you. There's only one way to God, and that's who? There are many ways to Christ. <laughs> and 
I could probably give you, I think sanctification is experiencing sort of reverberations of your confession, I mean your conversion often. Uh, I walked the aisle when I was nine years old in the Baptist church because my best friend, we used to call it, went up. You know, they give the invitation and you go up front. And he had to crawl over me and I just remember thinking, I got to do this and get it out of the way. So I did it. Uh, you know, I was baptized, immersed, came up, went in a wet center, came out a dry center or whatever, vice versa. Went in dry, came out wet. And uh, I can see several places in my life where God did unusual work. But uh, it's not really, in my estimation, that you have to know day, date, and time. You don't. But do you ask yourself today? Somebody was going, just ha driving me nuts with this that in a pastoral counseling situation. Finally, I said, let's pray right now. And you ask Jesus to save you. And they didn't want to do it. And I said, you got a pride problem. That's what you've got. You've got a pride problem. I said, so pray with me not right now. And we'll write down the date and you will know. And we did, and after that, they never asked me again. I don't know if they were relieved, but they never asked me. <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes the devil, sometimes the devil wears people out on that kind of stuff. He just does. Yeah, Bob. Okay, total depravity, unconditional election. Uh, limited atonement. I prefer particular redemption or definite atonement. Yeah, I like that. Uh, but limited for the tulip. Eyes irresistible grace. How in the world could anybody think I could resist God? I mean, how? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and the last one is perseverance of the saints.